0: I'm preaching to you. that's what Paul's saying to these people. They're trying to go back to Judaism and Paul's saying, I'm afraid I wasted time on you. They're trying to get more Jewish and they weren't Jewish at all in the first place. And he's saying, I think I wasted my time. Is that because he hates God's law? Is it because he hates the Old Testament? No. It's because he understood what it was for. The apostle knows as he's already told us that we were under tutelage, that the, the, the reformers would say that the, 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 the church called Israel in the Old Testament was in their infancy, in their childhood. They were, they were being trained. Nobody in this room who has taught a kid how to ride a bike with training wheels would think it wise or good or right. If your child, having used training wheels, learned how to ride a bike, became 16 years old, you went out on the road and they had on their helmet and they had on their, you know, their, their lycra, and they're driving down Lula Lake Road, making sure you can't pass, and And they're on their training wheels. They got training wheels on their bike. You would look at them and say, "Whats wrong with you? Does that mean you hate training wheels?" No. It just means that training wheels had a certain purpose. They were meant to lead you to full, free bike riding. They were never intended to stay on that bike. When you get braces on your teeth, praise the Lord, no one intends, or your orthodontist might intend, but no one intends that you leave those suckers on your teeth forever and ever and ever and ever. They're temporary so that you can get your teeth straightened up. Get your bite worked out. And to see a grown man wearing swim wings. It's like, what's this, kids? Getting on the high dive with his inflatable things on his biceps. With little ducks on them. You would think, what's wrong with you? Those things were meant to teach you how to swim. You're not supposed to keep wearing them. And so the apostle would say, look. Look, there's so much about there's so much about what God did in the past that was training. It was preparatory. He was trying to teach you, as we've said time and time again, through all these sacrifices and such. The reason we don't keep sacrificing is because we're Christians. We don't want to dishonor Jesus. We don't want to expunge from the record his work on the planet. If we make a sacrifice for our sins, we're saying Jesus doesn't matter. And Paul says that is the biggest crime you can make. You don't ever want to be in the position of saying Jesus doesn't matter because He matters for everything. The whole world and its rescue depends on Him. So don't you dare make a sacrifice for sin because you're trying to be redundant to something that Christ has already done perfectly. And don't you dare start thinking, I've got to eat certain kinds of food to be clean. I've got to keep all these ceremonial laws in order to be holy. If I ran over, if I saw, not ran over, saw a roadkill on the way to church, like I, I have to stay outside because I've been around something dead, a possum. Jesus has made us clean. God was teaching us to approach Him, you have to be clean, to come before Him. If you've sinned, sin has to be paid for with death, with blood. He was training. They were training wheels. They were braces. They were swim wings. They weren't meant for you to live under them forever. They were meant for you to understand. Christ has come, He's fulfilled these things. He now says, You're clean. And so you live as a clean person. Not because you acted clean, because His word creates what it says. You're clean. So He tells His disciples when He washes their feet. Every one of you is already clean because of what I've spoken to you. We've been reconciled. We're holy and blameless in His sight by His physical death on the cross. We don't have to make any sacrifices. You don't have to bring a deer in the back of your truck. I know some of you have that, but that may be for another reason. Eat the deer, but you don't bring it to God as a sacrifice for your sins. Because that's already been made. So as we've said before, if somebody comes up to you and they're like, hey, man, you Christians, you say the Bible teaches all this stuff about divorce and about sexuality and all that, but do you eat shrimp? You're like, well, uh, well, sometimes, but not much, because, you know, I don't live near an ocean. I'm kind of concerned about No, I mean, the Bible says you shouldn't eat shellfish. And you could say, well, it's because it's disgusting. (laughs) As Jim Gaffigan has told us, if you found a lobster in your house, he says, you would just move. (laughs) They're gigantic bugs that live on the ocean floor. And it takes a mallet in a restaurant to open up a crab to get a little bitty tiny bite of bug meat. But see, there are all these things that people, they, nobody who says these things really means them, but when they say them, they're asking us, they're accusing Christians of being cherry pickers. Wait, wait, you like some parts of the Bible, you don't like other parts. Of the Bible. You say, no, the reason we don't obey the teachings about the dietary laws, for instance, or that we don't still slaughter lambs on Sunday mornings is because we don't want to dishonor Jesus. That's it. It's not because we're picking and choosing. It's because those things were training wheels. They were braces. Those things were swimmies. They were to teach us to swim. They were to get us straightened out. They were to help us to ride free once we saw that Christ gave His life to complete all of those things. That's why we don't do those things anymore. But these moral laws, well, they were given to us to show us What being a human was like, which is what Jesus did. He was the law embodied. He was the law walked off the page. So all the lovely things the Bible says, I delight in your law, Lord. Your law revives the soul. There's a sense in which when God says, the God who knows you, the God who likes you, the God who's on your side, when He says, here's how how you are to be, when He started working inside you, you start going, yeah, that is the way of life. But you can get tricked. We can get tricked. When I was a teenager, I got tricked by my own heart because we're wired this way. I became a Christian and I was told, you need to have quiet times. Start having quiet times. That is not bad advice. It's fantastic advice. Now, in in more sophisticated communions, it's devotions. Have devotions. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher, and he told me one time that a Presbyterian ain't nothing but a sophisticated Baptist. (laughs) I think that was a backhanded insult. I don't know. But I was told to have quiet time, so I took that seriously. Quiet times mean you know, you're supposed to pray and then read your Bible and try to apply it to your life and things like that. It's a perfect, wonderful thing to do. Except if you get tricked into thinking that the quiet time has some power over whether God knows you, likes you, is for you, and what's going to happen in your day. So for a time, I could get tricked into thinking, okay, if I have my quiet time today, I should expect to be able to hit 20 on the basketball court tonight. If I do not have my quiet time tonight, I probably will roll my ankle in the game. If I have my quiet time, then I will likely do very well in my chemistry exam, which would be a miracle. (laughs) If I don't have my quiet time, I may forget how to read. If I don't have my quiet time, my radiator or my 1978 Volkswagen Rabbit on the way to school might explode, and, and I might spontaneously combust. But if I have my quiet time, my, my rabbit might turn into a much nicer vehicle. See, there's this thought, like if I do these things, I can control these outcomes. That's called superstition. And that's what a lot of idolatry is. Whether it's how you act as a mother and what you are able to feed your kids or how ubiquitous you're able to be with them. The things you think you've got to be able to do to be a right kind of parent. It's superstition. Even if you don't like baseball, let me tell you something about the Atlanta Braves. They are a sign of the end times. (laughs) The worst baseball team in the history of, I don't know, forever. And as a symbol of their debilitating awfulness, their shortstop this week was having lunch a nice lunch but apparently forgot to order the boneless chicken so he got a bone full chicken said bone and chicken got caught in his throat while he was eating and this major league baseball player he had to be taken to a physician sedated and have this surgically removed from his throat like yeah well of course Grown man, choke on a chicken bone during the season. That sounds about right for the Braves. And I was listening to a sport talk show this week, and they were saying, you know what would be awesome? What if if when he had the chicken bone removed from his throat, he went from hitting like 170, which is what everybody on the Braves are hitting, which is awful. What if he went from hitting like 170 to hitting like 350? And the sports guy next to him said, you know what would happen? There would be a whole lot of Braves choking on chicken bones. (laughs) Because baseball players are foolish. Athletes are foolish. Humans are foolish. We think if if I hit three home runs in that one game, I remember, oh, I accidentally stepped in a pile of chewing gum before the game. You start stepping in a pile of chewing gum before every game. So you hit the homers again. Because obviously those two things are correlated. That's how we tend to do it sometimes. The Apostle saying, look, there's nothing at all wrong with having a quiet time, with giving away money, with serving the poor. In fact, these things are awesome. They're good. There's nothing wrong with forgiving, with taking in orphans, with coming to church, confessing your sins, reading your Bible, praying. Do all of these things. Do all of them. But realize this. You don't do them in order to get accepted by God. You are accepted by God in order that you can do them freely like you're riding a bike without training wheels. Once you know that He loves you, you can do it in a different kind of way. Nowadays, with the quiet time, nowadays when I, when I think, oh, I haven't prayed enough, it's not because I think God's going to hate me because I haven't prayed enough. I think, "Ah, oh, I've missed out. There's all the difference in the world. Between I better do this or else, and if I don't do this, I'm going to miss out on an experience of God. I'm going to miss out on God's movement in my life in response to these prayers. I'm going to miss out on something that I've learned to cherish. All the difference in the world. You've been known, so don't get tricked. You've been known, so don't be enslaved. You've been known, so don't get tricked. And lastly this, you've been known, so here's what you should want. Paul says these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so they may, you may be zealous for them. They're, they're trying to build a party line here. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. Paul just kind of deflated all the commencement speeches all around the world by saying it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, when all the commencement speeches say, find your purpose, man! Follow your bliss! Achieve your dreams! They don't ever say, find out if your passion is any worthwhile, if it's any good to anybody except yourself. Don't Don't fail to realize you haven't developed enough yet to even know what your passions are, probably. Anyways... It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. To me, it's reorienting to remember that this apostle, the thing that gives him the most anguish in his gut, the thing that gives him... And again he's not in our culture a man is not allowed to talk about the pains of childbirth because he hasn't experienced it you can't talk about anything you've not experienced but you can watch a woman in childbirth and realize that doesn't feel good I can guarantee you this I have not felt it I do not intend to all praise to the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> But the apostle says you know what gets me doubled over in pain you know what what keeps me up at night is because you're turning your back on your life you're thinking you're running towards life and you're running towards death. You're thinking that you're, you're running towards what's going to fulfill you and you're running away from the one who knows you. And I ache because of it. You want to have an aspiration for your kids? Don't let it be that they have a fully funded 401K and a, and a master's degree. That's fine. Don't make it just that, they, that they're nice kids who don't do drugs and they don't drink too much. Don't, that's fine. Those are good aspirations too. But... Pray that Christ would be formed in them. That we would care deeply that each of us around us, the ones on our left and right and before us and behind us, the people we work with, that Christ be formed in them because it really does matter what you're passionate for. It doesn't matter if you're sincere. People think, whatever you believe is fine, so long as you're sincere. And Paul would say, please don't be stupid. There's a reality. You must frame your life to it. There's a king of the universe. He breathed it into existence. He's called you to things. You have failed at it. He has taken the penalty for you. And He offers you life. All you have to do is receive it. And He'll change you from the inside out. A guy asked me recently, Hey, what happens to us in the new earth? What actually changes in us when we're glorified? I think that's a great question. And I answered, you know, in a a typical kind of a cryptic way. I said, first... Well, there's really no telling on the one hand that Paul, I mean, uh, John says what, what's been revealed to us or what we will be has not been revealed to us. But when we see Jesus, we'll be like him. So in that sense, we'll be like him. And I said, well, I think is going to happen. What I think is going to happen is, is best illustrated by thinking about my life right now. Right now, Kathy can attest to this. She loves it when I give examples about us. Right now, there are each decade, three or four times a decade, so that's like once every two and a half years, where I'm inclined to say something mean or hurtful or uh, insensitive. I'd have to look back to my diary. I think I did 99, like 2003. And so, right now, what will happen is we'll be in the midst of talking about something. It might be something serious, it might be nothing serious and I will feel within me this quick retort coming. And I have learned full well that the best way to make temptation to go away is just to give into to it. <laughs> and so you just say whatever it was you were going to say without regard for how it makes anybody feel. Okay, so sometimes I do that. That's awful. It's terrible. That's not how you use words. And so I, I injure her sometimes with my words. There are other times... She may not believe this, but there are other times when it occurs to me to say something that would be injurious, that would be wrong, that would not be helpful, that would not be edifying, and I realize I'm about to say it, and I decide not to say it. That has happened twice. (laughs) No, it's happened more than twice. It happens to me all the time in my life. There are times when I'm tempted to say or do something, and I think I shouldn't say that. That wouldn't be helpful. That's not loving. That's not kind. That's not compassion. And so I don't say it. I think what God intends to have happen is that I would one day, like you, become the kind of people it wouldn't occur to us to say anything injurious. We don't even know what that's like now. Right now, when we want to do something good, there is a principle of badness that's right alongside us, so there's always a fight, or there's often a fight. It's happy, of course, when we find ourselves gliding in goodness. But, of course, that's the work of the Spirit in us. When Christ is being formed in us, he's working the law out of us from the inside out. We start wanting to be good. He makes us, from this point forward, willing and eager to obey him. Paul's not against obedience. He's just against obedience to get God to like you. But if you realize God really likes me and He wants me to come, become the kind of person who isn't ruled by thinking about myself, just think about that for a second. Every person in this room would be 162 percent more happy if they could just stop thinking about themselves for seven minutes a day. You'd at least for seven minutes you'd be happy. But you think about yourself so much, and God wants you to become the kind of person who's thinking about him and others. So he's going to have to rewire you from the inside. That's what you should want. Rewire me from the inside. Form Christ in me so that I become, like Jesus, someone who says, I love doing what God wants. I hate doing what God doesn't want. I find it a joy. It's my meat and drink to do what God wants. That's the kind of people he wants to make us. You have been known, so don't be enslaved. You've been known, so don't get tricked. You have been known, so here's what you should want. You want Christ formed in you and others. Eric Clapton has released a new album. Eric Clapton is 102 years old. Not quite. A lot of these rockers and rollers keep on rocking and rolling. The title of this new album is called And I Still Do. And I thought that's an interesting title. What I thought maybe had something to do with marriage or something. And I read about this new title of his album. And he had an auntie when he was but a young lad who would say to him as he grew up Eric, I liked you a lot as a young lad, and I still do. I liked you a lot as a boy, but I still do. Maybe she didn't talk like that. I thought that's a great expression. That's the the thing that Christians ought to appropriate. What God wants you to know through the apostles' words here is that you've been known by God who said to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Which is to say, I picked you. I pre-loved you. I wanted you. And I liked you as a kid, and I still do. One of my favorite things to tell my children at night I'm sure they get sick of it. I don't say it all the time now. I used to say it more. But it gives me great joy to say, boys, as I sing or pray and tell them I love them, then I say, I'm so glad that I get to be your father. I'm so glad I get to be your father. The apostle knows that when you start to believe that God says the same thing to you, He says, I liked you when you were a kid, and I still do, and I'm so glad I get to be your father. I know everything about you and have still wanted you. You're going to keep running toward him, to the Christ who will form his life in you and let you forget about you altogether, and instead the light and the honor of being favored children of the God who liked you when you were young, And he still does. I hope you will let yourselves be free enough to believe that. Amen.